Hey Webster. No? As if I'm so stupid and I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just here hanging out. I don't know what's happening. Or you could do a tongue in cheek like, hey, Webster, when's our next episode? Wrong. Hello and welcome to Word Up Podcast. I'm Evie. And I'm Webster. So, Whoa. yeah, let's hear one of your poems. What inspires you? For the most part, I enjoyed it. What's the weirdest thing that happened to you while performing? You heard it here first? <laughs> <laughs> Season 1, Episode 8. Hello, hello, and welcome to Word Up Podcast. I'm Evie. And I'm Webster. And today we are with MP. Yes, yes. MP. A.K.A. G.O.D. That's correct. Why not? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> what does it stand for? Well, MP. Yeah. Um, Matthew Paul. Surname Yamfam. Y-A-M-F-A-M. G-O-D just stands for God, like, you know, in case you didn't know already. Like. Very modest. <laughs> yeah, of course, man, you need to know who you are, so. So to our audience who don't know who you are, haven't mm. met you, haven't seen you performing live, yeah. can you describe what you do? Basically, if they go to church, the mosque, yeah, you know I mean, the synagogue, anywhere, they'll find me. <laughs> right. um, alternatively, they can also go to SFP stage, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> At Volta, you know what I mean? In London, in Amsterdam, in Luton. So humble, I love it. Yeah, man, there's a few places we're at. Um, so, yeah, man, I just, I do, I do, I do life via poetry mm-hmm. with the Soul Food Poetry family. Right. Yeah, what right. does a poet eat? What does a poet eat? He eats good life and she eats good life. You know what I mean? <laughs> Like this poet is on this no meat thing. That's why I like these crackers and olives and hummus and apples and things that we got going on here. Nice. Like, you know what I mean? Because what you put in is what you put out. Right. You know what I mean? So if I expect my poetry to be full of life, it has to be full of preserving life. It can't be full of taking it personally. Personally. You know what, I mean? what do other poets eat? I don't know. Couldn't <laughs> 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 <Then> tell you. <laughs> It's interesting the relationship between the poets and the musicians. Can you explain that a little bit for people mm. who haven't been to Salford Poetry? Mm. Boy, the relationship's a special one because it's kind of like a speed dating process. Mm-hmm. You don't know anything about them until they get up on stage in the first few seconds. You just need to understand them. Mm-hmm. You need to get what they're saying. You need to get their energy. You need to get whether they're nervous or not. You need to understand whether to come in with three instruments or just one. Like, there's... Put it this way, the musicians rehearse just for that purpose, (laughs) you know, pick up a random poem from the internet, Mm -hmm. start saying it and see how they're able to connect, Mm -hmm. you know, type thing. But it's down to the musicians, like how they connect. So they kind of create a mood based on what the person's vibe is, what they're saying. Yeah, what they're saying, their vibe. Their characteristics, yeah. their their tone. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like sometimes a musician will, um, an artist will come on and say, "Give me this," which kind of helps mm. because that's what they want. But unless it's an artist who's already written to that type of beat, you never know what the musicians are going to interpret from it because it's not just about the musicians trying to interpret and sh- support the artist. 
it's also about the musician's interpretation of what the artist is saying. So the poetry is being spoken through the music also, mm-hmm. you know? All for six euros. <laughs> <laughs> starting, you know what I mean? All starting from six euros. <laughs> like plug. going up, you know? Of course, <laughs> right. of course. And the reason why there has to be a plug there is because I may not be able to afford six euros. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Type thing, or 12 euros, should I say, or 15 or the 30 table tickets I'm talking about. But I may be able to afford the six if I've been given three months to put two euros down each month to attend, you know? And because it's all about inclusion, that's why that's available. I'm very curious about uh, if you have any advice for people who are struggling to become an artist or yep. to start creating, mm-hmm. like what would be your advice? Um, my advice would be come to one of our shows or anywhere, come to Word Up. Do you understand? Come anywhere and just get on that stage because there's nothing that you can do that time can't sort out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And everything's a process. If you're nervous, get on stage. You're excited, get on stage. So just do it. Just Nike, just do it. <laughs> you hear me? Just do it. That's, that's the best advice I can give. Yeah. Once you're on stage, then future advice can come. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. it's not till you get on that stage that I can say, like sometimes a lot of the time I'll say to people, the audience, no disrespect, it's just what I say to the mm. the artist to get them in. The audience aren't anything. You're the person on the stage. They're listening to you. Do you feel me? So when you're seeing all these mm. faces, don't feel like, oh, these faces. No, blank canvas them to begin with, if that's what you need to do. Speak mm. to them. You know that you're the person up there giving that sermon. <laughs> do you feel me? <laughs> yeah. Like you're the person in which you need to deliver something and hopefully you can change something in someone. Right. May not be your words, may not be your delivery because you haven't delivered it in a certain way. It may be the fact that you're nervous as heck. Yeah got up on that stage, did your thing, and someone else who's just as nervous as you, who wouldn't have done it, has seen you and been like, do you know mm. what? Yeah, I think I can try and do that because they overcame their fear and they did this and they did that and they did the other. That is poetry. Season two, episode three. Today we're here with the underground artist of Amsterdam, Zino. Hi. Hi there, <laughs> thank you for having me. How are you today? Um, I'm, I'm feeling good today. I've had finally a day off after a long uh, production period. Yeah. Your documentary is called uh, From the Streets to the Seats? Yes. yes. The trailer looks dope. <laughs> As, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it looks so good. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. I, I, I have to uh, give a shout out to, to, to my man, Constantine. Uh, he's mm. also a dancer in our collective, but uh, also the videographer. Mm. And he's working, um, he's been working on this documentary with um, a documentary maker from, from Swiss. His name is Flo. Um, he works with a lot of German rap artists and, and yeah, their skills together. It's, 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 it's next level. So I'm, I'm really blessed to work with yeah. uh, those souls. Yeah. And what inspired you to actually make the documentary itself? Um, well, all the work that we that we do that we re- research comes from a personal experience and and we we try to emphasize that so other people can identify them mm. themselves within those stories um, and i think for now this is our main uh, our main focus mm. I like it a lot. I wanted to know about the story of the documentary. Uh, it seemed super gritty. 
me coming from London, like I know the grit, you know, you see it in London, it's very obvious to me. But when you're in Amsterdam, it's hard for me to like to see it. It's like this pretty cute town with canals <laughs> and, you know, people riding on bicycles and stuff. Uh, tell us a little bit about the underground scene here in the, the, the Netherlands or Amsterdam in particular. Yeah, well, um, what I can tell about the underground scene is that it's, it's, it's very small. Um, there's a big commercial scene because, um, for example, names like, like Red Bull, they are involved in the, in the community, a worldwide community. So <clears throat> I think everywhere in the world where is, where is a, a big city like, like London or, or, or New York, there are um, hitters. And hitters, that's, that's basically our, our piece, it's called. Um, that's about dancers that wants to make a living that decide not to be in that commercial community, but choose to, to um, develop within the raw, in the raw underground circle. Um, so everywhere where, where are tourists, there are hitters. <laughs> right, right. Makes yeah. sense. I like it. How was it to dance for Obama? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask him. Uh, well, we did not have the chance to 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 see him sitting or or whatsoever. But um, you guys, how how much? The people were there in the audience. Like five thousand people. <laughs> yeah. It was very busy, you know. You just get yeah. on stage. <laughs> you really get a live audio, so you don't really see yeah. what's going on. You do the show, everybody claps, loves it. We hope he loves it. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's like this this rock star movie, you know. Like, like you see this rock star, and before he, he comes on stage, everything slows down, mm -hmm. goes in slow motion, and and it's really like that. <laughs> it's like okay, I have to go on stage now, and then you run on stage, and you see this huge crowd, right. and then. Then you get this moment of, of realization. Okay, now it's gonna happen. And you, you have to switch on to yeah, yeah, to to dance. But do you feel like your mindset doesn't change if you perform to I don't know, like in the street for 50 people or 5,000 or 50,000? At at that moment, yeah, yeah, of course it it, it changes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And how much like different cultures influence your uh, productions also because you're quite a diverse group. Um, As in, uh, like, I don't know, I'm, I was thinking now, like, you know, like Sufi dancing is a certain way of, like, do you have any influences from that you bring from your cultures that... Cultural dance? Yeah. Uh, um, no, actually not. Actually not. Um, but an interesting question, because last year we, we got asked to, to make a piece about our roots. And I was like, oh, nice, I'm going to make a piece about Indonesian dance and... But wait, I'm also Dutch, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that has quite of a uh, cruel history. Yeah. Huh. So we decided to make a, um, a piece with our own dance language that is not not cultural related, but um, to tell the story mm. about our, our identity. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, how it was back then, and, and what it brought to us now as, as as human again. Yeah. Yeah. This is gonna be the ongoing thread in the story everything mm -hmm. is as human as human experience yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it's nice season one episode six today we are here with art coke yes hello how are you today i'm um i'm, I'm pretty good i've been uh i've been very busy lately because my uh my girlfriend from america has been here Ooh. so uh we have like six weeks together 
So nice. trying to fit as many nice things as we can in this period, you know. Oh, so exciting. Thank you so much for giving your precious time to us. Then. Anytime, <laughs> yeah. yeah, really. Could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I'm an experimental electronic music producer, mainly right now. Um, I think I've changed a lot in that since last year. I've, I've, I was in Iceland for a few months and after that um, a lot of my sort of musical direction changed. And that's why now I would say uh, experimental electronic music producer. Before it would have been more of like singer-songwriter and uh, Dutch poetry or Dutch stories on, on music, mm-hmm. um, which I did under a different name. Uh, and now I'm here, I think, as uh, either it, which would be my, uh, my performance name now. Do you think the audience looks forward to it being improvised or how's that different to, you know, giving this something that they know has been practiced and, you know, sort of yeah. honed and uh, defined? Um, I think that's where the, the spoken word part becomes very important because like uh, the texts have been rehearsed, obviously, because they're like they can be long texts. Most of them are, are short, shorter texts. Um, and like when I... Um, we have a few texts, for example, that are dialogues, sort of very abstract inner dialogues that will go like a yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, why? Because feelings, just feelings. Yeah, because feelings. Why feelings? I don't know. Well, then no. Yes, no, yes. Like it, it'll be things like that that yeah. can be very easily improvised with, but still uh have have a structure to them so i guess that that is something that the audience i mean because you do have to give them something that is rehearsed or, or prepared you know to uh otherwise it becomes too loose also for me otherwise you can't really uh push a concept in yeah. it and i really want it there to be a concept and do you prepare the audience and sort of say uh hey guys it's going to be completely live and you know tell them your process or do you kind of keep that under wraps um, and perform as you will? I try to, I guess. Like it's, I think it's nice to tell people that it's improvised because that. I'm not sure. I'm, I, I actually, I, I'm wondering about that. Like if the if that works for, I guess the general audience. If there is a general audience, yeah. But to put them in a mindset of, um, okay, he's really experiencing it, experiencing it for himself. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Because I really do, and that's why why I get shaky. Because I'm like so, uh, it gets pretty fragile, I guess. Yeah, I think for me it adds an extra element of like, oh my god, I really need to pay attention because everything I'm about to experience, right. I probably won't get to see again yeah. in that order, in that way, with those emotions, you right. know, at present time. So, yeah. So it, it did for it did that for you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's <laughs> yeah, good. Knowing you're doing that, you know, it's sort of live. It's like, okay, sweet. Yeah. I'm looking forward to this. You know. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah it starts growing into more and more complex systems in which you're either not really sure how the input works, like with a TV or something. I Mm. don't know what my remote control does, but I think I have an idea of what the output will be. So I kind of understand. And then at some point there's systems that are just so complex that you cannot understand because every time you give it an input, even if it's exactly the same input and completely different output comes out. Mm. So it's, it's, uh, completely unpredictable and I feel like that's how life is a lot and how social situations are a lot like you can do something again because you thought it worked last time right? and then it just doesn't work this time uh, 
but the idea of uh, of just keep poking it with a different input was nice. <laughs> so like when I, I guess when I get awkward um, in social situations, sometimes I'll just pick a random thing to do and right. just do it and then see what the output is because then at least uh, I'm taking a little bit of control over the situation where I'm in. And if, if you stop giving input mm. to that system, uh, because it's so chaotic, then you really lose every type of control. So winning by confusion. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, I mean... Uh, Today we are with Ihaka. Hello, kia ora. I'm Ihaka. I'm from New Zealand. Um, I'm a freelance musician, I'm a singer, songwriter, producer, and multi-instrumentalist. And I've been living in Amsterdam in the Netherlands for, for three and a half years now. And I came on a one-way ticket all the way to Europe, sold everything, and, uh, and I've been just trying to build myself up as a freelance artist ever since. For our audience who haven't, maybe haven't heard your music, how would you describe it? Mm, that's a... Tough question. Yeah. <laughs> because as a freelancer, I'm involved in way too many projects to get started about here. Um, my own music would be a, is a mixture of soul and jazz and electronics. Right. Um, but that's a bit hard to look up because I, I'm releasing this year. Been working for the last three years on my own, my own band, Heavy Faces. Um, yeah, that's that kind of... Think about a mix between, do you know, do you know Subtract or Sampha? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sampha. Mm -hmm. A mix between Sampha and Jamiroquai and, um, you know, maybe Matt Corby, Qua Vocals. Sounds delicious. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a good time. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, I'm, I'm, in, I'm involved in everything from reggae to punk to drum and bass to to DJX with like just deep house and stuff. So I try and keep that as broad as possible. Just yeah. um, otherwise I'll go crazy. So <laughs> yeah, you have to I work on imagine. one thing all the time. The Dutch really only have like, if you want to say something, it's like that one way to say it. Right. And I think that, that was the most confusing. So I, I, after a while I kind of got surprised by how simple it is actually. Mm -hmm. That was, that was a surprise. But it was also, I had to learn quite quickly because I, I got set up in Zwolle, um, not, not exactly in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. And um, the level of English there just isn't that high. Right. So I, I kind of just got, I got stuck in my, one of my first rehearsals, one of my first big gigs in, in the Netherlands was the final of the Clash of the Cover Bands. Mm -hmm. That's quite a, quite a big event that's all over the whole Benelux. And I got, I got flown in the day before to to play with the band in the Klokgebouw in Eindhoven it was 5,000 people it was just massive fire fireworks and shit shit <laughs> pyrotechnics and shit yeah sounds dope and um I just kind of I had the rehearsal the day before and everyone was speaking Dutch and I was just like sitting there like whoa <laughs> like, I don't yeah. understand and then someone said something and everyone looked at me and I was like mm -hmm. Could you say that in English, please? Yeah. It's That's embarrassing, isn't it? Very embarrassing. Yeah. 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 What is the strangest thing that happened to you on stage? Wow. <laughs> wow. Good question. That. Wow. There's been some strange. People do strange stuff. I know, right? People are, people are weird. Tell um, us all. <laughs> yeah. 
I was playing at Amsterdam dance event. <laughs> this, yeah, this typical rock and roll story. I was playing at Amsterdam dance event with Canaris two years ago. We were playing in the Pacific Park. Pacific Park, also a great place to see like random stuff, but I think they're, they're changing the focus there. But Anyway, I was at Pacific Park playing at Amsterdam dance event. Great, it was packed. Um, 18 year old chicks on the coke. Great, <laughs> like, love it. Um, and and um, I had these these two like girls in front of me, and for some reason I just wanted them to start making out. So I was like, it's like a punk band as well. So I was yeah. like, yeah, go make out with each other. And they did, they fucking did it. And they kept doing it for the whole song. Living that was strange. <laughs> yeah, that was that was really strange because nice. like, what would you do if I told you to? Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, put your hair on fire. Yeah, your hair, light your hair on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Such a trip. Or uh, last a couple of weeks ago, we were we were playing in uh, in uh, Willem II in uh, Den Bosch at a festival. We were, and um yeah it's a great it's a great location but um the stage is low enough that you can like stand on the stage so at, at one point we got like that there were just people standing in front of the band on the stage trying to crowd surf but it was the same people that were trying to crowd surf the whole time and the the rest of the audience was just kind of like kind of getting tired of these people that were crowd surfing and this at, at one point i just kind of got like, pissed off i was like get the fuck off my stage and like kicked him in the back <laughs> kicked him in the back and he like jumped off but no one caught him and oh, no. i just saw him like boom like oh. On, oh, his, on his on his butt like, <laughs> like i saw him walking off like oh my back oh, oh no <laughs> were the audience happy about this yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. I, I, a lot of people afterwards are like, "Yeah, like I, I was getting so annoyed with the people that were on the stage." So like, yeah. good job. For getting the back. I was like, okay. Looking out for the crowd. That's cool, man. Yeah. <laughs> that's nuts. I mean, those are crazy stories. Season one, episode two. What's good? What's good? It's the orator. You're now listening to the Word Up podcast. I am main. <laughs> Would you mind introducing yourself to the listeners who don't? initially know you uh, what's up <laughs> um hello man what's going on i'm the orator man Pe- uh, people's person sometimes sometimes not um poet all the time traveler as much as time will allow um and yeah just i exist man i just kind of i exist and just tell stories what's up <laughs> <laughs> you've been traveling recently right Yes. Tell yes. us where you've been, what you've seen, what you've learned. Uh, since November last year, I've been to Jamaica, America, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Burma, Vietnam, Greece, and the Netherlands. So, Damn. yeah, we're here. We're here. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been a good travel. It's been good travel so far. How were you influenced by grime at the time? Was that a big part of uh, your childhood growing up or? Yeah, man, I'm a grime baby. Grime baby, man, trust me, like, that was just the sound of the time, you feel me? On the back of UK Garage, like, Garage was still about when I was coming up. Um, but grime, grime was like, by the time I got into like, secondary school and we're halfway through, grime was the thing. Like, grime, 
grime was life do you feel me them old school pirate radio sets people used to send sets and send tunes infrared bluetooth like back when like you'd wait for like a radio set to come out or you'd wait for people to come on radio because you knew that was a place to catch them back when people were clashing each other and you'd say a man's name on radio and he would just come to the radio station like do you, <laughs> do you feel me like none of these twitter fingers <laughs> man's ass like you got something to say we're clashing now and then wow. now we now you're on air going on like you're bad and the guy's in front of you are you going to clash and back it or not <laughs> and if you do it makes for some legendary moments you feel me yeah um so yeah man gets Gets versus Bashy. I was playing that earlier today, man. Legendary moment. Where's Carlos? Where's Carlos? All my grime heads know exactly what that means. Where's Carlos? So, yeah, grime, life. Grime is life, trust me. And I also wanted to ask you, because all your albums and book names are quite complex words for a non-native speaker. <laughs> How <laughs> do you worry, come man. up with that? <laughs> do you do know you... <laughs> oh, Yeah, my, my project titles are just really cool words. <laughs> um, I think the most appropriate and most apt, but they're not common words. I know within even within the UK, like they're not words you're gonna come across all the time. But do you sit like and look for words somewhere? Like, do you have like a small book where you're like writing all the complicated words? Um, sort no, sort like no, a source, sort of, you know. No, um, no. Funny enough, I do have a folder of words on my phone. <laughs> um, I think there's about just under 200 words on there and every so often I come across a new word so that's I, wicked so but yeah no I love I love words so the first project vernacular is kind of means regional dialect like it's it's similar to slang but it's just you no know, different places use slightly different set of words right it doesn't yeah, matter yeah. what country you're in right so we refer that to refer to that as local vernacular so that one's called vernacular because I just talk how the hell I want to talk and uh, I can use words like hippopotamus equipadeliophobia yada 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 but <laughs> what's the point I just want to talk how I feel comfortable talking uh, Floralesium because if you see the album cover uh, and the eventual book cover mm. uh, there's a crest and there's some flowers on it um, and there's a pen and there's a banana clip two banana clips and mm. a crown um, and Floralesium's gathering of flowers. The flowers on there are the regional flower for Leicester, national flower for Montserrat, and the sorrel flower, which happens to grow in Jamaica and the Gambia. So all places that mean something to me. So yeah, so that's what they mean. Yeah. So they're yeah. complex, but like, oh no, it makes sense. Right, but there's other poets, not even, they aren't called them poets, so you can be spoken word artists. There's other spoken word artists out there with... Um, quite a following and a name on the internet thing but not really got that much respect from his peers right got booked for a gig in my city come down telling some story about how this poem allowed him to have breakfast with Will Smith da 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 and Lester's great because Lester just doesn't give a fuck about nothing right <laughs> <laughs> so he did his thing da 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 and he performed and it was, a, it was an okay performance he had his friend playing keys it was nothing special right mm. it was just like literally yeah, yeah. yeah. I made sure that I went on just before him. I went, I tore the house down. I did my thing. I made sure I came out shooting, firing from the hip. Cool. I know he got paid almost a thousand pound to be there. And I will think I got offered like 50 quid. Wow. And I was just like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to wheel and come again. <laughs> but like, but wow. it showed me though, my set was three times as good as his, mm. right? And he's getting paid a grand all in. 
So therefore, I must be in a, I must be able to ask for the same money. But because it's not normal, we don't do it. Yeah. Do you feel me? And we just we get accustomed to, you know, just you know covering expenses and da da da, which is cool because eighty percent of the time that's how it's gonna go because you're working with your people, you're working with other people that want to build, you're working with. But when you are working with organizations that have budgets and you are working with multinationals and you are working with huge organizations, don't let them tell you ain't got no money. If they ain't got no money, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Today we are with David Chislet. Yes, that's me. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Was that the best way to pronounce your Chislet? Yeah. Well, you don't have to overemphasize the let, but you can. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> I <course>. try <laughs> to yeah. make it more special. <laughs> Well, tell us about your spoken word. Um, I actually haven't had the pleasure of seeing you on stage just yet. But would you say there's a theme to what you talk about on stage? Or where do you get your inspiration? And uh, what are you trying to share with the audience? I always kind of hesitate to classify what I do with my poetry live as being spoken word. I tend to feel that that term is most often uh, used when describing a much more rhythmic rhyming style of poetry, kind of a la hip-hop going slam kind of thing. I don't do that. Uh, I'm over-educated and, and middle-class navel-gazer, so therefore I tend <laughs> to write kind of unstructured, broken verse stuff that doesn't right. necessarily rhyme. Okay, cool. But I come from a performance background. You know, I did a lot of acting at school. I've got a lot of, uh, I've done a lot of singing vocal training. And so even though it's not technically, I guess, spoken word, I put a lot into actually making that stuff come alive when I do it live. That's really my focus. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm just wondering, like, you being born in UK and growing up in South Africa and now being here, hmm. does that change your perspective also? Does that help or does that inspire, challenge your whole world view and the way you run business and the way you write poetry? I think changing your physical perspective cannot do anything else but change how you think and see things. I, 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 I think that is inescapable. The role that's played in my life, um, yeah, I've always pretty much felt like an outsider wherever I've been. I've never truly belonged. So that perspective has been quite different to many of my contemporaries and quite possibly is what led me to the desire to write about it anyway. Mm. It was kind of like a private processing system. Um, and, you know, I haven't always had the easiest life. I mean, not the worst or what have you, but, you know, shit happens. And I've always found that my writing has been a very efficient tool to process those experiences and those things. Like, there's a lot of poetry I write that I will never show anybody that I'll never publish because that's actually not why I wrote it. I wrote it because I needed to figure something out. Mm. Um, I tend to share the stuff where I've got something to say about something rather than the stuff that I pretty much used as a tool for my own I don't know therapy yeah <laughs> journaling and yeah 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 okay what do you learn every time you do something right that it works right that's good which I like you it. know already right yeah what do you do when you make a mistake don't do that again you learn something like yeah. that didn't work mm -hmm. I need to try something else yeah so it's actually a hugely valuable experience that's how wine was made and many other delicious, <laughs> wonderful things. What I want to know is who's the first guy who licked the back of a toad? Yeah. And how did that happen? I mean, that's clearly a mistake, right? <laughs> People be crazy out here. <laughs> <laughs> 
Do you have any pockets of advice for people who are feeling in a rut, uncreative, um, as if they don't know where to go next? I think, apart from what we said earlier, if you're if you are like an art-producing creative person, the important thing is just to not stop doing. Um, because yeah, maybe what you're writing right now is drivel. Maybe you are stuck in a rut. Maybe it's not great. But it's better to have that bad stuff outside of your head than still waiting to be produced inside your head. Work your way through it. All good art is supported by razor-sharp technique. And you don't get any better if you only think about doing all your life. So even when you're going through a rut where your content maybe isn't so good, you are still sharpening your skill set for producing work by continuing to do, whether it's painting, writing, singing, acting, whatever it happens to be, keep on doing. Nobody said ever that everything you did had to be masterpiece. It's, it's, we just don't know how much junk Michelangelo made. You know? <laughs> Doesn't mean to say that he didn't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's you too, you're no different. Mm. I mean, to, to think that you're never going to produce junk makes you basically think that you're better than Leonardo da Vinci and T.S. Eliot. Yeah. Season 2, episode 4. Hi, this is Merida Miller from Project Fearless, and you're listening to Word Up Podcast. Can you tell us a little bit how it all started for you? Sure. Um, well, it started in a whirlwind of despair, uh, to be honest. <laughs> um, I spent seven and a half years uh, as a corporate designer, um, which was amazing and had a really cool, sexy title. But I realized eventually that that wasn't my end goal. Um, so after a year of just to be honest, like despair and, and panic of what do I do with my life? How do I help people? How do I make me come out and give the world what I'm best at? Mm -hmm. uh, I realized three things were really important. Um, and that was one, I loved creating communities where I could empower and cheer people on. Mm -hmm. I was never MVP on a team, but I was always the coach's award for being the biggest cheerleader. Uh, and I have to be in a place where I'm physically active, making things, doing mm -hmm. with my hands, and then also uh, creating an impact. And so I thought about what was missing and what I was really lucky to have as a young girl growing up. And I wanted to bring that to future generations. I wish I could, uh, <laughs> I wish I had stuff like that when I was growing up, actually. Because yeah. for me, it was uh, kind of, you know, being, being like a boy, I was like, right, you're going to do sports. You're gonna yeah. do hockey. You're gonna do rugby, football, and my sisters would get to do like dancing yeah. and like theater, theater and stuff, which I got to into in my later life. But I always wished, as a young kid, that I could try all those things because I think kids are curious. hundred percent. You know, I think a lot of the things that they see and they learn is because they look around and they're like, oh wow, there's no other boys or no other girls doing that, so I probably don't want to do that because I don't want to be an outcast. I don't want to be an outcast, or who do I approach, or what? Where would that lead me to? Yeah. You know, because it's you know. So, um, for instance, we want to do a bike mechanic course, like a bike engineering mechanic course. And I've been like canvassing the city for bike mechanics who are women. And it's not because we're anti-men or we don't think men have a voice. It's more of the fact that like part of our program is the see her, be her. So yeah, we could have a course taught by a guy, but the, at the end of the day, we really want to show girls that there's jobs for her and it's a real it's it's such a simple connection but it's really important um but also back to your point about the idea of like just having options to try things and without the pressure of being the best 
So one of our girls in the Mind and Movement Lab, her, her thing that she was thankful for was that she got to do, like try all this stuff without feeling the pressure of having to be perfect or the best. Because a lot of stuff, you know, whether it's team sports, which offer so many great learning skills. I'm a huge supporter of team sports. I think it's really important. But um, at the end of the day, sometimes you just want to like dance goofy and not have anybody to tell you that your toes need to be turned out that way or you're not skinny <laughs> enough to be on stage. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> it's just giving them a place where like you can be yourself and you can be your best, your worst or just your medium self. And we will support every moment of that. And yeah, like I think it's very important because I think we are so stressed to just like lose opportunity just in case yes, it comes yeah. and you're not at home and you're not and it's knocking mm -hmm. and nobody's opening the door and it's like you know like Dutch postal service nobody leaves <gasps> a message <laughs> the worst oh my gosh we could have a whole podcast on that <laughs> wait what's this I've never heard this have you ever had a package delivered or yeah. attempted to deliver to your house yeah and it's okay uh, I've never had a dud as in I've never had something not delivered to my house what Oh, wow. I don't oh, order stuff that lucky. much then. What? <laughs> do you have like a, a concierge at your, <laughs> your apartment? Oh yeah, Jeeves <laughs> receives all my packages. Because <laughs> <and laughs> I've considered <laughs> it. <laughs> Butler. Yeah, yeah, seriously. I guess I don't order stuff that much. Maybe I've been lucky. Oh, wow. But tell me more. It's notoriously the worst. Like yeah. notoriously that you just won't get stuff. And they're like, yeah, we left you know. It's like, no, you didn't. Oh. Or you like, they leave it like at the, at someone you don't know, like five houses down yeah. on the street. Yeah. I've had that <laughs> for my, well, my landlord's had that where her stuff just goes to someone else's house and then and she gets a random them. guy or <laughs> knocking yeah. on the door. Like, well, at least they deliver package. it. Yeah. yeah. I've had yeah. people who are just like, okay, well it's here. It's like, yeah, well, I never got a note to say that it was there or, yeah. Oh, I've had so many, so yeah. many issues. I know. Wow. <laughs> this is like therapy for me. Yeah, seriously. Like, like, we could have an entire podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, I forget where we were. <laughs> oh, the, the, opportunity. Yeah, the opportunity thing. Yeah, totally. Uh, uh, and I don't know, you know, I don't know if that's, if that's a harder thing for women too, with the whole scarcity at the yeah. top situation of right. like, um, uh, breaking the glass ceiling and having to push forward always. And, <laughs> pretend or prove that you have this beautiful work-life balance that you can be all the things. And at the end of the day, that's not possible. No. Um, and it's okay, which is even harder to accept. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I, I know the feeling as like being a freelancer. I think uh, when you start out, one of the things that you do is just say yes to absolutely any project, yeah. any time, you know, anyone. I'll sell you my know. soul, yes. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yes, yes, 100%. yes, 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 yes. And Awareness, then, great, love yeah. it. <laughs> and then as you grow and you start to see the, the value that you provide, you can start to kind of suss out like which opportunities or which clients or whatever are worth spending your time with. Yeah. And I think it's like that with, you know, entrepreneurship or, or anything that, you know, requires your personal time. Season one, episode two. Today we're talking to Sydney Lowell. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> Hi, Sydney. Hi. How do we pronounce your name? Is it Lowell? Lowell? Lowell. 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 Cool. Yeah. I thought yeah. that might have been. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. No, it's fine. It's fine. I got the message. I got the message. Yeah. <laughs> but you're a spoken word poet also. Yes, I am. How do you introduce yourself? As a spoken word artist? Woo, that's, that's, mm. let me start broad. Because, yes. Um, yes, I would identify myself as a spoken word artist. Um, but since I've always been a very creative person, um, that's just how I think of myself. I'm a, a creative spirit, and spoken word is something that occupies most of my creative time right now. 
Um, and for me, spoken word is, uh, it's an outlet, it's, it's expression for me. It's a way to share with people and to kind of create a platform for myself to talk on topics that I find really relevant. Um, activism uh, related topics, things like self-love, uh, confidence, um, building each other up. That's, that's, yeah, I find that really important. And um, right now that really expresses through my spoken word. Um, but I know that once I graduate, you know, you have more time to do other stuff. And that's, you know, it's kind of just playing Monopoly, just expanding yourself, right? <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. Would you say you're someone who has a lot to say when we were speaking earlier? You said like you were really confident and you didn't want to get off stage, <laughs> which is <laughs> yeah. the opposite of what most people experience yeah. when they speak for the first time. Yeah, I definitely have a lot to say. People who know me, like I can talk for hours. I can talk your head off. You know, I have a lot to say. And I think anyone has a lot to say. It's just, do you want to? Do you find it necessary? Are the things that you talk about relevant? Do you want them to be? And I think that, um, I think, yeah, it's one of my favorite, but well, actually it's my favorite rapper, Milo. Um, he says in one of his songs, I owe it to myself to speak free. And this is something that I apply to, to, to my art as well. It's just, um, yeah, there, there is a lot to say, you know? There is so much to say. And to be able to use your voice for self-expression, but also to, to motivate others or to have them think that's yeah i find really really um yeah it's amazing yeah you sound very positive yeah. but i wonder like is there something that some art that comes out from your frustration does something annoy you about the world or something that's yeah. around you the world is so complex you know and um i always say like there's an external world but there's a whole internal world as well like a yes. whole universe and being an empath like I journey through that world every day. So um, when I experience emotion, I experience it very deeply. So it's, if I'm happy, I'm really happy. And if I'm sad, I'm really sad. You know, I will ball my eyes out and it will be like, you know, tsunami in my bedroom, but it's all good. Like that's part of my journey. And I learn really quickly because I face everything right away. I don't hide from my emotions. So. I, the, the things that I write about can also stem from frustration or sadness or um, um, maybe a, a feeling of, we don't, we don't actually have a word in English or Dutch for this, but it's a, a Portuguese word they also use in, in Cape Verde and um, uh, other countries, it's saudade or saudade, and it, it's a combination of longing, uh, an eternal longing or missing grief, you know, knowing that you won't probably get anything back, but it's this, yeah, this really, um, yeah, uncomfortable feeling. So that that's that's also a large part of where my sad writing comes from. So it's more archetypical, kind of like yeah. that sense of yeah, something that you can define. Yeah, but usually it's yes, I do write about dark moments, but usually it's to empower myself. Um, and it's kind of a therapy, isn't it? Yeah, it is, really. Because, <laughs> like, I will have my jazz on, you know, or a beat tape. And um, I know there's something on my heart that I need to get out. And it's it's like your spirit is writing, you know. And yeah. For me, that's a moment where I'm releasing. And for me, 
documenting that is really powerful because every time after that I'm performing it, I I get to live my resilience because I did that. Yeah. You know? So yeah, that's maybe that's still kind of making it into a positive thing, but yeah. Um it's transformative, isn't it? Yeah, it's very transformative. Yeah. Definitely. On a bar stool seated, white wine quietly enjoying from afar, comfortable and ease. You can see full well from the bar, I know. But there's even more to feel than see, so dear man, be free. Dear man, be free. I'm not trying to have you in discomfort, not trying to have you be that which you're not. But kind soul, you're much, so be the whole lot. The joy is free, the joy wants and persists and it has come for you. So loud and overwhelming, light, big, bright and strong, blinding, I know. But joy is here for you. Joy hums to you warm melodies of your favorite jazz and soul. See how joy back and forth and back and forth teasingly will parade. Joy will ask you to come with, join the chance of Buena Vista Social Club and Donny Hathaway. Joy might be messy and uncontrollable. At times, it might feel like your body's too small a vessel to contain it. But you know how to release, have it burst out, embrace the infinity of life, transcend dimensions, and spread so far and wide, break the rules of spatiality, and you'll smile. You'll smile. Because that's your spirit giving thanks to your vessel for allowing it joy's encounter. Dear man, your jaws and cheeks might even begin to ache, but best believe you'll be surprised by how much more smile they can take. So you'll keep on smiling anyway. So when you see my hand, know that I'm not trying to have you study the map on my palm or for me to point my index finger at all your flaws and judge. No, not at all. Know that I'm not even trying to get a sip of that transparent poison called alcohol. When my hand reaches for yours, know that I come in the name of joy. And barstool seated, you might bruise your ego by trying to choose it. But you'll soon feel the joy and realize its familiarity. Doubts and fears will shrink to be futile and you'll feel that you, dear man, deserve to be free. Wow. <laughs> That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, like, do you have any advice for the artists who are in the place where you were before, like doubting mm -hmm. when is the right time or should you or should yeah. you not? Yeah, I think um, listen to yourself, develop a good sense of self and um, know how to listen to your gut feeling and we say gut feeling but gut is a physical physical way of putting it i mean listen to your spirit is basically what it comes down to um because i i don't think i ever doubted myself it was the opposite i knew when when the time arrived i knew mm. and so i was ready and i have people coming up to me quite often just before they're they're going to perform or whatever and telling me they're so nervous they don't know how to deal with it like but the tone 
of their voice always surprises me mm. because they will come up to me and say i'm so nervous like oh shit i don't and i'm like okay so wait repeat that you're nervous so what <laughs> you know it's it's how how do you interpret your own emotions and this is i think a key a key part of 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 listening to yourself listening to your spirit or your gut when when you are ready when your spirit is ready when your your soul is ready um your mind might still be holding you back because that's your comfort zone talking right you know your mind might still be telling you that it's not a good idea or it might be you know it's 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 rationale trying to talk some sense into you but art is not sensible expression is not sensible it just is what it is so when you develop a good sense of self and and your gut feeling you will soon be able to distinguish fear from incompetence mm -hmm. <laughs> and it will be like okay no i am ready it's just my, i need to drag my mind along and embrace that you know even if i wasn't nervous a lot of people are and that's like literally no big deal nerves are a sign that your body is aware that you're gonna be doing something that you're passionate about it's adrenaline it's good energy so use that to your advantage and don't be afraid that that's gonna hinder your performance right because no one will mind if you like just forget one word or whatever um so i think that's uh um yeah and another thing and it's a general message but it also applies to art um yeah as long as you act from a place of love and righteousness anything you do will be valid you know don't doubt don't doubt that um and you'll see what comes from it you know mm. yeah So I hope a lot of new artists are coming after. I guess I'll be looking. I'll be looking for you and credit me. You know, like mm, I heard that from Sydney Lowell on the podcast from Word Up. Yeah, that's her. Yeah, no, but definitely, I always tell my friends and people just manifest. That's it, manifest. Season one, episode one. Today we have a guest called Joshua Baumgarten. Oh, wow. <laughs> Evie. Wow, that's quite an intro. That's quite an intro. Evie. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Webster, good morning. Yeah, good morning. Ennio on the uh, on the tech side of things. She's not as a ghost. We're not supposed to pay attention. So, <laughs> so welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Welcome um, to the Irrational Library shop in Harlem Town. Thanks for coming out. It's a great space. We're excited to be here and to find out everything, all the deep secrets you have for us. Deep secrets. Dark mm -hmm. secrets. <laughs> I try to keep my deep secrets in the shallow end of the pool. So <laughs> We're open. We're open. Yeah. Let's, let's share. <laughs> Trust me, this is not a safe place. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> I'm intrigued. Like I said, it's a, we said this is an, uh, not a passive-aggressive place. It's an aggressively passive place. <laughs> For our audience listening, would you mind describing your shop? Because it's really cool in here. Sure. Um, we are now sitting in the back of the Irrational Library shop on the Dulstraat uh, in Indertuk Swart, 31 black in the uh, Harlem town in the Five Hook. And it's a sort of yeah, secondhand record, book, comic, everything that is cool in life shop with two barbers, Rob and Clemens, the Mad Daddies. Uh, we exist now seven years. 
and it's I, I had this once this sort of mantra slogan about the shop if i remember correctly it's sort of like we fill it try to fill up the shop with the influences and reference, references of yesterday so the creators of tomorrow know best who to rip off um i just wanted to go back to ask about your poetry when do you think that you started writing and since we already heard your influences a little bit um yeah i think i I was thinking about that this morning and other people have asked that to me. I have this vague memory of like when I was 13 or 14, my parents had a party at the house for some holiday occasion, so there was a lot of relatives over. And something happened that annoyed me, so it pissed me off. So I remember going in my room and writing an angry piece. <laughs> and I've never stopped. <laughs> so, uh, but then uh, when I was 16, 17, I was in this punk band in high school and I was a singer from then and I wrote the text. So uh, then I came, I wrote the, the classic sexual operation. My mommy had a pussy, my daddy had a dick. Um, I gave her a blowjob because nah, she's such a prick, something like that. <laughs> it's all about saying transgender. It was before its time, I think. Transgender. Yeah. Uh, Sending the trends. <laughs> uh, this one's called Leave It All As It Should Be, Not As You Think They Might Like It To Be. Leave the dictators to their piles of dirty dishes, the fascists to their fascination with fractions, and the conservatives to their unhealthy concern for Kabbalah. Leave the liberals to their lizard skin collections, the professional athletes to their contemplation of their own lifespans, and the orphans around the world to their opinions about single-use plastics. Leave the garbage men to their cherry-picking, the politicians to their arguments with their own spouses, and the Hollywood elite to their ever-increasing lactose intolerance. Leave the poets to their Rubik's Cubes pastimes, the songwriters to picking pistachio nuts from between their teeth, and the exotic dancers to paying back past taxes. Leave the junkies to their double-dutch jump rope, the professional bowlers to their Budweiser blue balls, and the weekend warrior badminton players to their uncircumcised shuttlecocks. Leave the high school teachers to their stock investments in Kevlar, the lunch ladies to their frozen pizza preservative Fridays, and the school bus drivers to resisting every impulse to drive off a cliff. Leave the Mexican day laborers to their salted margarita daydreams, the orthodox rabbis to their all-you-can-eat kosher buffet at the crab cake factory, and the Mormons to their insecurity when it comes to eating Swedish meatballs. Leave the neo-Nazis to their needlepoint swastika pillow-making, the Muslim Brotherhood to their bow-tie community-controlled chaos, and the Harry Krishners to their hopscotch game through a hostile universe. Leave the punk rockers to their safety pin conformity safety net, the hip-hop heads to their eight-point scrabble word score for the N-word, and the country music fans to the chewing gum stuck under the seats at the Grand Old Opry. Leave the barbers to deal with the insecure vanity of all the white boys with beards, the tattoo artists to all their misinterpretations of life that a person can persuade into their own skin, and the piercers to all the loopholes in life that may help another to get over their hang-ups. Leave the storytellers to their fabled lives of imaginary nobility, the acoustic guitar-slinging troubadours to all their songs strung out on catgut, and the burlesque dancers to all their belly buttons filled with boa feather dust.
leave the newscasters to their Muppet-like open and shut mouths, the journalists to their fear of being murdered, their grays labeled fake news, and the talk show hosts to the horrors of polite silence after midnight. Leave the shopkeepers to ponder what to do with all their extra stock, the cafe owners to all the empty tables waiting to be occupied by cockroaches, and the fast food franchises to their pockets full of cash smeared in human fat. Leave the gods to their congregations buttoned up with fear, the choirs with their vocal cords strung like nooses around their necks, and the atheists to believing that they have all the answers. Leave the universe alone to manifest its own mayhem. Leave the distant planets as uninhabited as they currently are. And leave the future of humanity a whisper of peace and success with sorting out the mess that all of us up until now have scrambled into tiny little pieces of asbest. What's the weirdest thing or the, what's the most interesting thing that happened on the stage over the years? Oh, I wish there was a good story about that. I don't really, I don't know. Yeah, well, it, it had nothing to do with poetry, but it does have something to do with poetry. It has to do with the time that Patty Smith called me an asshole. <laughs> that's, that's always good. And it's, I'll try to make a long story short. I was working as a host at Down the Rabbit Hole Festival the second year, and I was hosting the second stage there. And I had asked to host the stage because Patti Smith was performing. And I've never been a huge Patti Smith fan, but respect for her work, the people she's worked with, the fact that she's still doing it, and she still does what she does. Power, you know, no doubt. So I asked to host the stage, and I knew the people running the festival. I worked there before. I worked for Lowlands, we were hosting stuff. So I was like, yeah, sure, great, cool. So the first day of the festival, we have a meeting, and they explain to us, of course, you know, uh, as a host, you have to make contact with either the artist, the manager, or something to let them know who you are and what you do, if they're what they want, if they're wanted or not, you know. And I'm like, well, I've been hosting stuff for a long time, so I know how it goes. Cool, no problem. So the whole day, I. I waiting to see someone from the Patti Smith group dealing with other bands and some performers really love what I did and some were like, no, we don't really want that. Okay, fine. Yeah. Uh, and I had built up this whole intro about Patti Smith as the godmother of punk rock and being influenced by the French romantics and this whole sort yeah. of thing, you know, to really tell the people in the audience who might not really know who they're dealing with, this is what you're going to get. So finally it gets towards showtime and the, the whole buzz and hustle and bustle and I see my stage manager and I say to him, Bart, have you met anybody from her crew yet? And they're like, yeah, that guy over there, that's her manager. And I see this guy, this little dude, big black cowboy hat on, you know, uh, shirt and a black vest, open with the hair coming out and all the laminates and stuff like that. He looks like an elfin cowboy or something. <laughs> and I'm like, he's like, uh, I forget exactly his name, but he says, yeah, that's Eddie. And uh, okay, cool. So I'm sort of like a bit nervous, you know, but I'm thinking, okay. <laughs> so the guy, I see the guy barking orders people and he's walking towards me and I sort of like go, hey, I sort of just jump in front of him and go, hi, excuse me, you're Eddie, right? He goes, no, and he's not Eddie, it's Edward. I forget exactly what his name was, but it, it was like, I called him by <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Goes, No, it's Edward. I go, oh, 
Okay. Hey, Edward. My name is Joshua. I'm the host of the stage. I'm going to be introducing Patty Smith in a little bit. No, there is no introduction. It's just a walk on. And he just walks right past me. I don't lie. Oh, fuck. All right. Fine. That's okay. Fine. That sucks, but so that's the way it goes. You know, have to be a dick. But, <laughs> yeah. but uh, so it goes. So there's no introduction. So I watched the show from the side, on the side of stage by the uh, by the main, the tech panel, or whatever you call it, you know, front of house panel or the, whatever. That was a brilliant show. I mean, just out of 61, you know, playing all the classics and this is just these, these song with all these shout outs to olds like William Burroughs and the crowd's like, mm. and then Kirk Cobain, they're like, yeah, and it's, it's Jim Carroll. And they're like, and I'm like, Jim Carroll, man, that's <laughs> Damn. Anyway, um, so show's wrapping up and she's pulling the guitar strings off. Of, I think they do my generation at the end, you know, pulling the guitar strings off show ends crowd and they're walking off on the other side of the stage so i come from the other side of the stage and I grab the mic and I'm, ladies and gentlemen boys and girls down the rabbit hole let me hear for the one and only godmother of punk rock patty smith blah, blah, blah. and um you know uh, i said a few other things about about her and then i round it off with you know in the immortal words of French romantic poet Charles Baudelaire, who said that you have to go out and get drunk, get drunk off of life, drunk on the wine, drunk off of the good times, go out there tonight, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and get drunk on life, and down the rabbit hole, go out there and fuck like rabbits, or something like that, you know? <laughs> something like punk rock, crazy fun, yeah. you know? And I also said, you know, we should all know where we were at this moment because we witnessed a legend performing it. So I was like, yeah. So I walk off. Stage. I walk behind stage, and then from the behind the curtain, I see down there um, the Eddie screaming at uh, Bart, the stage man. Now, Eddie's a dwarf, or not dwarf, he's just a short little man. Small man. Small man. And Bart is tall, big Dutch guy. And so he's with the finger waving up and stuff, and I'm like, oh, okay, that doesn't look very good. I'm going to just walk a long way around. <laughs> so I go a long way around there backstage and I grab a beer and I sit down and Bart comes out and he goes, dude, they're pissed. And I'm like, who's pissed? And he's like, Patty Smith, man, she called you an asshole. Oh. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah. I was like, what happened? She's, now, she walked off stage and she, heard, and then she sat down in a chair and this guy, Eddie, was putting on his shoes and because his shoes are off, he's putting his shoes back on and then he hears, she hears what I say and she says, what? I go out there and bust my ass for an hour working this asshole goes on stage and says that? <laughs> wow. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> so then there was this ripple effect of like, she's pissed. So her manager's pissed. Manager's pissed. Manager calls booking agency. Booking agency is pissed and calls direction of the festival. Direction of the festival is pissed, so he calls the guy who booked me, who was running the festival. Wow. He's pissed. So it's this whole ripple effect that I didn't even really know was going on until the next day when they came and found me and like this guy who had hired me to do the job, who I knew from Harlem, from Patronati, said, you know, asked me what what was going on. I said, well, great first day, but I guess he heard. And he said, yeah, we almost had a fire last night. I'm like, why? It's like, yeah, well, um, they told you there was no intro and no outro, and you just went and did it. Oh. And I was like, wait a second, let's rewind this. Who told you that? And he's like, yeah, this guy, the manager, Eddie, told you that there was no intro and no outro. I said, now we're going to stop. 
because this asshole <laughs> told me there was no intro. It's nothing about an outro. Oh, and if it's in the contract that you guys signed with her, you fucked me. Oof. I didn't fuck you. Yeah. I do what I'm told to do. Yeah. I know what I'm doing. You know, I I take the job seriously. You're going out there, and so it was. Yeah, they were like, "Well, yeah, other people are saying you you're too busy on the stage. You're too basic." I'm like, ah, "Fuck off." <laughs> so that's why I don't work for Mojo anymore. Oh, jeez. I hope not to because I date their bullshit company, put on bullshit festivals. Put it out there. <laughs> no, I do. I think they, they booked the big bands and it yeah. looks so glorious and stuff. Yeah, but it's so tight assed. I think you have to be nice with people, you know, when you're working creatively, you know. I didn't think they they understand what I do, and I think that has a lot to do with how I am as a person, and it's just more honest than maybe most. Yeah. I don't know. But anyway, that was, that was a weird story. It's a long story, but that was the weirdest <laughs> pride thing that happened to me on stage, that one of your, your heroes can all of a sudden call you an asshole for, like, just trying to inflate elevate them look, them. them look good yeah and now every time her music comes on i have to turn it off or people <laughs> she's played in the paradiso i think sometime last year people are like so are you gonna go are you gonna call her are you gonna you gonna do this you gonna do that I'm like no i'm not gonna go <laughs> but i do wish maybe one day i'm on a festival or something yeah. hired to do what i do with, with the band or alone and she's there as well for some reason i can sit her down and be like patty seems to be a misunderstanding between us. You once called me an asshole. And she'll be like, who are you? <laughs> the <laughs> asshole. <laughs> oh, 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 you. Oh, you. You're, you're not an asshole. You're a dick. Season two, episode four. Today, I'm with our lovely guest, Joseph. Hello. Hi, how are you today? I'm very well. How are you? I'm very excited to have you here. Good. Yes, it's been a, it's been a long time planning. We finally made it. Yeah. Yes. And we are here in your lovely office overlooking an amazing Amsterdam panorama. We do have a really beautiful view. What a pity we're on the radio. Uh, <laughs> we're just next to Central Station. Very central location indeed. Yeah. And you are, I heard, social media wizard here. They, that's what they called me. Yes. The social media <laughs> wizard, the social media storyteller. These are the things that I do. Yes. And how did you get to be here? How did I come to this job or yeah, to this country both. or to this Everything. place? How did I get to be here? <laughs> yeah. Well, once upon a time, a man called Joseph went to a uh, beauty pageant called the Rose of Trilly Festival Ooh. in County Kerry in Ireland. And there he met a woman called Jean-Anne and he really liked her and she really liked him. And they continued to see each other until the point that he asked her to marry him. Oh. And so because they met at the Rose of Tralee Festival, the flowers for the wedding were roses. <gasps> so I'm here because of a beauty pageant to be called the Rose of Tralee Festival. Joseph and Jinan are my parents. Oh. And uh, <laughs> when I learned this wonderful story of union, I got a tattoo of a rose on my ankle. Oh, and wow. I know tattoo roses are the tackiest of all tattoos. And I love <laughs> my rose tattoo so much. Um, so that's how they made me, I suppose. I'm one of three boys. But then I grew up in the southwest of Ireland and um, I loved talking, as many Irish people do. And my dad is an amazing storyteller. And my whole childhood was spent listening to him tell stories as yeah. he would be driving back from work and we might be with him in the lorry or in the car. He did many different jobs and we listened to many different stories. And I suppose I learned the tradition of storytelling from my dad um, just by listening.
Yeah, let's just jump straight into the toxic nature of social media. Mm. That you know, the the elephant in the room, um, <laughs> and the toxic nature of um, excessive online activity in any sense, even in dating. Um, so Instagram exists and people love it. Mm. And you go on there and you take your best holiday photo. And you might have spent three days in, um, let's say, Vienna. And instead of enjoying Vienna and eating the food and drinking the coffee and talking to the locals, you're just checking out where's my best Instagram location. <laughs> and you get a beautiful door and you think, oh, this is going to be gorgeous behind me in my selfie of my face in Vienna. Right. And you've got it and you put that up online, but then you need to get another one and another one and another one. And so you're not really on holidays in Vienna and you're just at a photo shoot that happens to be in Austria. <laughs> Essentially, uh, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people fall victim to that. And I, I myself have fallen victim to that so many times. And it's the way it's constructed and the way that social media works is that sometimes we can become removed from reality. Mm. And even though something that's created to help you make connections and to find intimacy removes it from you. And it's a bit of a paradox. So I feel like engaging with that toxicity, you need to be careful with how much time you spend online and you need to be careful with how you see yourself. You should see yourself for real, which is very hard to do, and not see yourself mm. as that person in the doorway in Vienna <laughs> that got 6,000 likes. Um, and so then you look at your photo and you put a filter on there and the filter makes your skin better or takes away these spots that you have or hides your freckles or you can then doctor it to like fine details that your hair can be nicer in your version. <laughs> and I suppose that can be fun for a while, but yeah. then it can it can grow and it can get out of control and not to pick just an Instagram. I mean, it's on Snapchat. It's just how we work in the world right now with photographs online and filters. So um, one thing is to limit your time online. Another thing is just to do stuff that is in reality with people like go for a run, go for a jog, jog with a friend, go for a swim, go to the gym. I look every week at how many hours I spend on my phone because my phone tells me oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm always competing with myself to get it down and get it down and get it less and get it less. But at the same time, I want to use these devices for the the gifts that they bring and the yeah. access to knowledge and the access to information. I feel as long as it's fun and you're playing with it and it's playful, it's good. Yeah. But when the moment comes that you need to check these things and you have to do these things before you go to bed or first thing in the morning yeah. or when you're out for lunch with a friend and you're not thinking about lunch and the friend and you're thinking about taking a photo <laughs> of the lunch with your friend, I think this is where we're crossing boundaries. Yeah. So speaking about addiction, mm -hmm. are there any other dangerous things in life that challenge you? Oh my God, I have so many stories to tell you about addiction. <laughs> um, I suppose we should start with, uh, we were just mentioning there a moment ago, my father and how wonderful he is. I love my dad. My dad's amazing. And um, oh, he's just done so, so many great things. I'm so blessed and lucky to have such a great father and he gave me his name. So I'm Joseph Jr. and he's Joseph Sr. And um, Throughout our lifetime, by choices I have made, mm. we have been less close. And by choices I have made recently, we have been more close. And that's Lovely. very important. Yeah. Uh, but he never distanced himself from me. He never closed off his love to me. I just couldn't find a way to speak his language as an adult because my whole life I was hiding that I was gay until I was 16 or 17. And of course, he always knew because he's my dad. Of and course. he used to call me Josephine as a child. Like there was no shock when I told him I was gay. Uh, but for me, I felt so dishonest that I was hiding who I really was from my dad and pretending to mm. be straight. And then this guilt and this fallout and this shame afterwards and thinking that he could never understand and removing myself from my family and moving far away and having less and less to do with him over the years. 
and then wondering how can I speak to my dad? How can I have right. this attachment and this connection? So I remember when I lived in Dublin, I bought a car because my dad knows everything about cars, and I thought, oh, this will give us something to talk about where we oh. can have a, you know a similar interest, and so that was lovely. And then um, I stopped drinking when I was 27 for a year and a half, or when I was 28, and that was another moment where we rekindled our friendship because my dad doesn't drink at all. Okay. And then when I was 30, I started drinking again, and I lied to him about it, and I was deceiving, and this put a wedge between us. But he mm. didn't put a wedge between us; I did. And then I tried to move to the Netherlands and didn't move to the Netherlands, and then I did move to the Netherlands, and he was all the time watching on the sidelines and loving and supporting. And I got here, and then. I suppose when I lived in Ireland, I had a support network. I had family, I had friends, I had a nice job, I had a career and identity. Mm. And when I moved here, I gave all of that up. And that was quite uh, destructive and chaotic. And I don't know why I did that. I know I wanted to live here to be close to my brother, but I came here without a plan. And for several months, I had nothing. Mm. I mean, I had my brother and I had life and I had partying, but I mean, I didn't have an identity or a signature or a friend network or much of a family network beyond myself and my brother. And my housemate works for a TV company. And this TV company was looking for people to go into a reality TV show. And so at the beginning of my sobriety, when I was just getting grounded, when I was just coming off the drink and just coming off the drugs and there was light at the end of the tunnel and hope, I applied to be in a reality TV show programme. And I wrote down on the application form, I recently realised that I was very, very sick and I worked very, very hard to get back from that. And I'm so proud of it. And that's why I want to be in this show. So they brought me in for an interview. They yeah. asked what all this was about. They filmed it. I had a mini breakdown on camera. I told them my story. They loved it. They loved me. They took photographs of me. They offered me the job. And then I thought, if any journalists dig around in my background and find out that I'm an alcoholic or a drug addict, it could end up in a tabloid. It might not, but yeah. it could. And if it does, maybe people here at Romeo will read about it. And maybe he, people here at Romeo will think, I wish you told us before. I wish you'd given us mm. a chance to react. So I thought, okay, what can I do to manage this situation before it even happens? So I thought I need to come into work and I need to sit down with someone and I need to open up to them about my drug addiction and my alcoholism and just face it and see what happens. Right. So I came into work and I said to one of my dear colleagues, Kerry, that I need to speak to him privately. And he took me into a room and we sat on a sofa and I looked him in the eyes and I said, Kerry, I'm going to be in a reality TV show. I've been offered this chance. It's filming for two weeks in Spain. And he said, congratulations, that's amazing. And I was like, thanks very much. And I said, but stories might come out about me that you might not know about mm. me. And I think I should tell you now. And he was like, you could tell me whatever you want. And I said, but Kerry, it's not work related. It's not professional. It's quite personal. It's quite private. And he said, that's fine, Joe, go ahead. And so I said, okay, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a drug addict, I've been in recovery for about three months. I go to these groups, I go to these meetings. And he said, do you think you're the first alcoholic that I've ever worked with? Do you think you're the first drug addict that I've ever loved? And I was like, Kerry, thank you so much. <laughs> it was so beautiful. And so I hugged him and he said, it didn't matter. And if anything came out, it would come out and just to do what was safe for me. And then he said, if you're gonna go and be in Spain and there's a problem when you're filming the show, if you feel exposed or if you feel on shaky mm -hmm. ground, just call me. He's like, I'll be there for you. And this is in the moment when he is trying to make children happen in Mexico and when he and his family are trying to grow and he's got his own life to take care of. And he offered me this love and this affection, which is a really integrated part of my recovery and one of the main reasons that I love working in Romeo so much, that we are a family and that we accept each other. 
um, warts and all. Um, so that was a really wonderful thing that Kerry did for me. And then uh, this company posted me the contract mm. to say, we need you to sign this to be in a reality TV show. So I took it to a place and I read it and they said they were going to own my image in perpetuity at infinitum. And so I looked at that and thought, what does that even mean? <laughs> in perpetuity at infinitum? My image? I'm going to wow. give you my image? And then they said, if you do anything that reflects poorly on the image or the values of the company, you will suffer a 10,000 euro fine payable immediately. If you tweet, give away the location when we're filming, there's a five grand fine payable immediately. If you do anything to cause the cancellation of the show, there's a one million euro fine payable immediately. Wow. So I looked at this and thought, I don't want to go to Spain and be in a show and then be bankrupt for the rest of my life because <laughs> I sent some revealing tweet. I mean, I'm a drug addict and alcoholic in recovery. Like my boundaries are shaky at the best of times. So I like, I can't, I can't sign up for this. So I sent them an email to say, look, I don't know what the values of your company are. I work for a dating agency. I interview um, topless guys. I put sexy photos online. What are your core values? What What is your company mm. about? What might I do that could reflect poorly on you? And so we emailed over and back about what the conversation, what the fit was. And I hand shaped this beautiful email that I'm so proud of <laughs> that listed every bad thing I had ever done wow. and sent it to them saying, is this the kind of guy you want to sign up for your show? And then the email stopped and then they rang me. So they had, there's nothing in writing for proof and said, <laughs> um, we have no judgments of the things that you've done and we celebrate you and we think that you're wonderful, but we're just going to check how our investors feel. So off they went to check with their investors and sadly their investors could not get behind the Joe Carney brand and that's fine. And in reflection, um, I think going to Spain for two weeks and giving up my security and my friend network mm. at this intimate moment in recovery would have been a terrible idea. So in, in the long run, it mm. all worked out okay. I didn't get to be on TV. I didn't get to be on a reality television show but I got to carry on with my sobriety and now two years later if I got a, offered a reality TV show tomorrow I think I'm in a much stronger place to do it would I sign away my image to perpetuity? <laughs> would I send them the email of all my wrongdoings? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I also sent it to a friend in Ireland and her response was to be the intern that opened that email. What a shocking and memorable day it would be for them. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also kind of very black and white in that sense. Like the way I'm listening, it's kind of like it's a reality TV that cannot handle reality. reality yeah. <laughs> but I suppose I've done some things, you know, I have lived. I have lived. <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's <laughs> mm -hmm. intense. Oh. Yeah. I suppose, but also I'm a newbie. I mean, I'm only coming up to, it'll be two years on the 1st of January. Um, oh, that's another thing. Gosh, how much time do we have? <laughs> oh, we have all the time. Let's talk about love. <laughs> I work in a dating agency and we hope to help people find friendship and we hope to help people find love and we hope to help people find a life and identity and I myself am always seeking love and looking for friendship and looking for connection and two years mm. ago in uh, December um, I met this man called I'm sure I can use his name I'm sure he won't mind I met this man called Barnaby and just by his name I was in love with him wow. <laughs> and um, we dated and had an intense connection and it was really phenomenal and mind-blowing and um, 
He was quite impressed that I wasn't drinking alcohol. But at the time, I'd given up alcohol and thought I could still do recreational drugs. And uh, no, I'd given up drugs as well. I met him, I'd given up alcohol and drugs, and he was impressed by it. Mm -hmm. And I was impressive, and it was good. And then Christmas came, and he went to uh, Berlin for New Year's. And I was here. Mm. And I decided to go to a house party with strangers and drink, no, and just take drugs. I didn't use alcohol and use drugs till four in the morning. And then I was thinking, I'm dancing in a stranger's living room at four in the morning on New Year's Eve, not with friends, not with family, not with Barnaby. Why am I doing mm. any of this? And so I left that house and I got back to my house and, and I woke up in the morning of the 1st of January and decided that's it. I am fully, fully sober. Now I'd experimented with being sober and I'd been to groups and this is post the talk with the nurse and this is post mainline. This is me waking up at the 1st of January thinking that's it. I am now sober and fully committing to sobriety. So Barnaby, the love of my life, who I'd met two weeks mm. earlier, came back from Berlin mm. and I met him and I said, I can't go on a love adventure with you and work on myself and being sober. They can't happen at the same time. And I need to work on myself and be sober. So this has to stop. And he was so respectful and so mindful. And he gave me the space that I needed. And he gave me the love that I needed. I fully, truly believe in that really short time of two and a half weeks that we loved each other. And it was beautiful. I know it's so short and so silly, mm. but I believe it. And a year later in my sobriety, we met again just for him to check on me to see how I was doing. And a year later, he checked on me again. So he's a, he's a good one. He's a good soul. Wow. Very respectful of my boundaries and my need for space and just checking on me because that connection was intense. But it was very hard for me to choose between myself or this love relationship and I had to choose myself and in the long run it was the right decision cool thank you very much and as usual guys you know where to find us it's www.wordupodcast.com where you'll be able to find our social media and make suggestions about future guests etc etc thank you very much goodbye thank you Word bye shout out to Word Up Yeah, that's it. Yeah, done. <laughs> <laughs>